All right, guys, welcome back to the Light and Lion podcast. This is part three of our discussion on the Bible and its reliability and its validity. This has gone much longer than we expected, which is awesome. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I've learned a lot from both the conversation and my study as well. So we left you in the last episode on kind of a cliffhanger where we talked about the different translations of the Bible and if each of those translations is inerrant and infallible. So Chris, go ahead and jump into that. What do you think about uh, about that question? Yeah, and <clears throat> I, I think it's important, and this is probably one of the more pressing questions, that especially Christians have. I mean, if you're non-Christian, you're probably not concerned with the different translations because you, you don't think there's any stock to any of this anyways. We're just a bunch of hocus-pocus, you know, following people. But um, for the Christian who might might be wondering what, what uh, translation or, or certain translations more reliable than others. And I would actually say, yes, there is sort of a, a range, right? There, there's some translations and I'll give my recommendation here in a second in terms of what I, I think are the more reliable and uh, the, the translations I think that we should read. But I think it, it's first important to say that the only version of scripture that is inspired, it's infallible and it's inerrant are the autographs, which mm-hmm. if you'll think all the way back to two episodes ago, the autographs just means the original writings and and those are the only uh, the only actual writings that were inspired and sort of superintended by God, right? right? Like they they those are the only sources that had God as their author. Now, when most people hear of that, like when I heard that, I was like, okay, so we don't have the inspired word of God when we read our Bibles today. But that but that's not true, and that that worry is really unnecessary. And I'll explain why. Through God's providence. He, he has gone through great lengths to preserve his self-revelation over the last several thousand years. Um, and he's done that primarily through the use of very detailed, oriented, and devoted servants of his. Um, and <clears throat> while the copies that we have today, they're, they're not inspired in the technical sense, um, but thanks to things, again, like we talked about a couple of times, textual criticism where we can look at all the manuscripts and we we can with an extremely high uh, confidence, 99.99% confidence, say this is what the original, like when the Apostle Matthew wrote his gospel, here's what he said based on the you know several hundred or thousands of copies that we have of Matthew's gospel, whatever the number is. Uh, we can know what the inspired word said so we can be confident that um, what we're reading today while the wording might not be identical to the inspired words that God, you know, again, superintended with the original writings, we can be confident that the theological significance and the meanings are the same. Right. Now, in terms of my recommendations, I personally uh, tend to lean very heavily into the ESV, that is the English Standard Version. And by the way, if you're looking for like a good commentary Bible, there's actually an ESV study Bible where the bottom half of it kind of has some notes and commentary, which I, I, I find to be helpful, mm-hmm. uh, at least at a superficial level. Mm-hmm. And then the other uh, version that I really like is the CSB or the Christian Standard Bible. Both of these I have found to be a lot more literal translations, but they're also a lot more readable in terms of the modern vernacular like how we talk today um but but they both tend to be a little bit more of a word-for-word translation compared to the original greek um you know again that's talking about the new testament but you you get the point right yeah i i think uh going off a little bit of a detour but on the commentary piece 
I think commentaries are, and we've talked about this in the past, but commentaries are so valuable, especially with, I, I literally have the ESV study Bible on my shelf. And if I didn't have these wired headphones, I'd go grab it and show it to you guys. But, um, but I think commentaries are so helpful to give us context to some of these things that are a bit more vague or obscure, especially if we're you know, reading Leviticus or something like that. And we're trying to understand why some of these things, I was going through Leviticus this morning and it was probably 30 minutes of talking about skin disease. And so if I'm listening to that, I'm like, why is, why is this here? You know, so the commentaries are super helpful to talk about why that's in the Bible and, and how that, it, how that, why that matters to us and as we go back and read some of those things. But I will say also make sure that as you're reading the Bible, my recommendation is read the Bible, you know, read the chapter, whatever you're, you're doing, whatever you're reading is for the day and truly consider and try to wrestle through some of the, uh, the pieces of it and think through critically what it's saying, try to understand, you know, the speaker the audience and the message, and then use commentary as secondary, you know, resources to, to try to get more context. But I think I've been guilty in the past yeah. of using these commentaries to, I read something, I'm like, hmm, that's kind of vague. And rather than taking the time to critically think about it, I open up my commentary and see what John MacArthur has to say about, you know, what, what this means, um, which, which isn't bad, but I'd say make yeah. sure that we're careful to, to do the research first. Um, something as it pertains yeah. to uh, biblical translations, and I think you touched on this perfectly, is that the autographs were inspired and fallible. That does not necessarily mean that every single translation that we have today is, in fact, inspired and infallible. And I'm going to give you a good example of a translation that I really recommend you avoid. And that is a translation called the Passion Translation. Chris, I'm sure you knew exactly where I was going <laughs> Let's with go. that. Um, and, and I don't want to harp on this I was too waiting much. for it. I don't want to harp on it too much, but I do want to make sure that, um, that we understand um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be very careful real quick with something too. My sister asked me when I told her I told them I said do not read the Passion Translation. She has a a Passion Bible from like Passion Church. That is not what I'm talking about. The the, the Passion pa- yes the Passion Church. It, it's like a, it's like an NIV or an ESV or something. That is not what I'm talking about. Yep. Um, what I'm talking about is the Passion Translation. And this translation was, as far as I believe, was written by one man. And when I was doing research on this. Uh, on this translation on their website, I'm going to read a quote from the website. It says, the purpose of the Passion Translation is to reintroduce the passion and fire of the Bible to the English reader. It doesn't merely convey the literal meaning of words. It also expresses God's passion for people and his world by translating the essential, original, life-changing message of God's word for modern readers in a way that is clear and readable. And then they go on to say that they, quote, expand the essential meaning of the language by highlighting the essence of God's original message. I want to, fo- there's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's really wrong with the quote that I just read, but I want to focus on specifically this word mm-hmm. expand. So Proverbs 35 through six says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So Oof. don't expand what God's word says. And, and yeah. I, I'm trying to say this in a way that's, that's gracious and as loving and kind as possible, because I'm sure that the writers of this translate, or not the writers, the writer, the one translator of this translation, I'm sure he meant well when he, when he put this translation together, but God's word clearly says, do not add to it. So if I'm reading the Bible and I don't feel yeah. like this, the chapter, the scripture is conveying enough emotion for my flesh, I'm not allowed to go in and start adding more words and then thereby changing the meaning. If you read the Passion Translation, many of these texts, and I have read many texts from this, 
I guess you can technically call it a, a Bible, I guess, but from this commentary is probably a better way to say it. It does, in fact, change the meaning of many things because we add a lot of words, or, or the the translator yeah. adds a lot of words to that. Um, if yeah. I was to, mm-hmm. and, and and I want to hear your thoughts on this as well, but if I was to decide that I wanted to write my own Dakota Jacobson translation of the Bible, and I sat down at my computer and I start, you know, I start typing away, I pull out a, a manuscript or, or a Bible, and I write down John three sixteen says that every single Christian will receive a cherry red Ferrari within five to seven business days of conversion to Christ. Is so two, there, there are some things that are not going to happen. One, one is that's not going to, is by me putting that in there and saying that this is a Bible that does not make what I just said true. It doesn't make it infallible. doesn't make it inerrant. In fact, that is, I, yep. as far as I'm aware, that is incorrect because I've not received my Ferrari yet. Um, second thing is, is that <laughs> it's not going to autocorrect on my Word document to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, dot, dot, dot. So be yeah. very careful with the translations that we read. I would also say that it's not a bad idea to take some of these translations like the ESV, NIV, um, CSB, the, uh, the NASB, and look and see how they, how they use, you know, compare yeah. verses, right? And you can go on websites like Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible, and you can see these translations side by side. Um, if you're reading a a solid translation, the meaning of the text will be unchanged. It just might be easier for you to understand based on the on the language. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump off. That's exactly right. And no, I and I like that you bring that up too, because that was a recommendation I was gonna say is, you know, I think our tendency is sometimes to marry ourselves to a particular translation. Like, you know, you have the red, the red letter Christians or the the King James only Christians, those sorts of things. I think it's really wise for us to hear the same message, maybe told a different way, because like you were talking about, it might just give us more clarity. Like if, if a certain word is replaced and I see that a lot when I'm reading the CSB. So typically when I study, I I don't read them, like I don't read up a chapter in my ESV and then immediately go read the CSB. But if there's a point of, and it's not ambiguity because God is unclear in the word, it's because of my lack of understanding. But if there's maybe some wording that I'm having a hard time with because I don't necessarily talk in that way. I'll typically flip to my other translation and say, well, and typically it's, I'm having to go from the ESV to the CSB right? and say, well, how does the CSB? Cause the CSB typically, at least in my experience, seems to be a little bit more modern in its linguistics. Like in terms of, it seems more natural to me in terms of how you read it. But you brought up something that I think is another really good point when you were talking about not writing stuff into scripture, which brings up the whole, you know, topic of canon. Cause mm. if you're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible, we have to talk about the canon of scripture because how do we know that the Bible we have today is in fact, what is inspired? What if something crept its way in and it shouldn't be in there or, and th- this is the argument. This is certainly the argument of uh, Roman Catholics against Protestants is what if you've intentionally left out some stuff so your theological perspectives can be justified? And it, and I think a real interesting topic that we might talk about is what about the apocryphal gospels? Mm. So Dakota, I don't know if you have any thoughts there. I have quite a bit. I could talk about this for a while, but do you have any thoughts on uh, the Apocrypha or, yeah. you know, our, our canon of scripture. I do have some thoughts and, I, and I'll, I'll make this, uh, I'll make this point quick. Cause I, I definitely want to hear, hear your thoughts on this. I'm excited um, to, to hear what you have to say about this, but 
a couple of quick things is that with the with the apocryphal books, and I've heard a a pastor described it this way, and I think it's it's probably a a good balance between understanding the place of these books and and giving some grace as well. So these these books can be used as if we want to get some more um, historical background as to some things that could have potentially happened. Um, so if you're going through some of these quote unquote like lost books or whatever, if you're talking about like the Maccabees or something like that, it's something that we can read and think, well, this could have happened. In, I don't know. Maybe um, it could be, there could be elements of it that are, are historical and it could be beneficial to read if we're trying to get some kind of, you know, additional, just like I would read a history book, right? I would want to, I would read that in, in just to get a context for maybe what was happening, what was, you know, kind of the scene around around these things happening. What I will say is that these books are not divinely inspired. There is there are such wild outliers in these. And I'll leave it at that right now because I don't want to step step on your toes on this. But I will say, let me give you another example of kind of when we talk about the canon and some things that crept their way in or that should have been in that weren't. Um, so and and when I was thinking about my example for this, I wanted to make sure I was I was careful to to say it this way. So um, so I'm a huge Astros fan. Um, anybody who knows me will know that, that I'm a massive Astros fan. So I'm definitely excited about our 2022 World Series championship. So let's say that I was to write an account about the 2022 World Series championship team. So I wrote my account. I said, the Houston Astros played the Philadelphia Phillies in the 2022 World Series and beat them four games to two. World Series champs, awesome. And let's say 30,000 other people also wrote their accounts of what happened in 2022 with the Houston Astros. The Astros beat the Phillies, but let's say that somebody said the team from Houston beat the team from Philadelphia in four games to two. Also correct. If someone said the Astros beat the Phillies in less than seven games, that's also correct. Now, if you'll notice, there are some variations between the way that we're saying this, but everything we're saying is exactly true. And let's say that there are yeah. there are 30,000 account, 30, accounts of this, and let's say 29,000 999 of them say the Houston Astros beat the Philadelphia Phillies in four games to two in a sense. But then let's say there's an account that says the New York Yankees beat the uh, the Philadelphia Eagles in game six of the the Stanley Cup to win the you know the the PGA Tour. Um, <laughs> obviously that <laughs> obviously that's ridiculous. But if you were to read that and you were say a thousand years from now you're trying to gather an account of what happened in 2022 in the MLB season. You're going to take these and you're going to throw out this one because, of course, that is completely ridiculous. But here's what these, these historians, quote unquote, would say. Um, these guys like Bart Ehrman or, or you know, Sam Harris, they'd say, well, you're clearly just twisting the, you're only holding fast to the things that you think will help your theology. You should, you should keep that because if you, if you were a true historian, you would hold on to that. I think we can understand how ridiculous that is, and I know the claim, you know the, that example that I gave is ridiculous. But if you read some of these apocryphal books, or you read you know you read books like um, well like the the Gospel of like Thomas or the Gospel of like Judas, some of these claims are so absurdly outlandish that anybody who actually reads them will be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Why why we why, why those yeah. were rejected? I want to hear your thoughts on this because I feel like you've done quite a bit more research on this. Yeah, I think yeah, you you brought up a good point, just like you would expect a continuity, because that's an argument that I've heard is, well, you guys just you guys took the the books, not us, but you know, the the early church, they they took the books that helped them justify their beliefs 
and they threw everything else out. And maybe some of those other things were inspired and we threw them out because they contradicted what the church had already chosen to believe. I think that's problematic for a lot of reasons I won't get into because I could probably take up a lot of time. But I think in terms of answering the question, like we've talking, we're talking a lot about the apocryphal gospels. Why were those not included in the canon? So I think it's important for our listeners to understand that when canon was officially established, um, you know, in, in terms of church history, and they came and they recognized these books, right, as official canon. Um, by the way, it's worth saying that these books did not gain their authority at the time of their canonization. They were authoritative from the second that the authors under the supervision of the spirit wrote them. Right. So, but the criteria, there's a few things that we can think about. First is the date of it or like the timing of it. And, uh, the other thing is the actual content. So when we look at the apocryphal gospels and let's just look at these two areas, there's a lot of other things, right? But let's just look at the two areas of dating and content in terms of dating. All the apocryphal gospels, like you mentioned, you know, gospel according to Thomas, there's a gospel according to Peter, and these are notable people. You know, the apostle Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church. So you'd think if Peter wrote a gospel, we'd want it. Um, you know, one thing that people tend to leave out is Peter is very likely the source of Mark's gospel because Mark was not an apostle, but that's another topic for another day. Right. But the gospel, and let's just take one, right? The gospel according to Thomas. Because it's probably the most whack of all the ap apocryphal gospels. Like <laughs> that's a good way to put it. It is whack. Crazy stuff. It is whack. Um, but if we look at that, we we look at the manuscript evidence because we spent a lot of time in the second episode talking about the the manuscript and and how many copies we have and and how we know that they were dated closely to the originals. So the original gospel of Thomas, we can only date that to probably very conservatively speaking, the early third century. So a very long time after the last uh, uh, apostle, which was the apostle John who died in the 90, 90 AD first century. We don't have the gospel of Thomas until I believe, and I, I could be wrong, so don't hold me to this, but I believe it's the early third century is when they've pretty much dated that writing to. So the problem is with, with the date is if it's outside of the lifetime of an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, for example, the apostle or uh, excuse me, the eyewitness or gosh, I'm getting mixed up with my words. The writer of Luke, he was not an eyewitness. He was not an apostle. However, he was a very close associate of an apostle. And so Luke kind of, you know, might maybe served as a filter for some of these things. He assumably lived far longer or he outlived Paul and probably the rest of the apostles. I don't know when Luke passed away exactly, but the problem with the apocryphal gospels is there's no eyewitness or apostle endorsement of these writings. So that's the first problem. When people read the gospel according to Matthew or the gospel according to, to Luke, even that's a better example because, again, he wasn't an eyewitness. People accepted these writings as canon and as divinely inspired, namely because other apostles like Matthew and Paul, were they had, they had access to these writings and they said, yep, these are in, in exact um, alignment with the revelation that I've received from, from God. So there's that uh, portion. And then in terms of the content, and there's a lot of scholars who try to argue specifically for the Gospel of Thomas, which is incredible to me. Because again, it's the most whack, probably. Um, there are certainly some apocryphal gospels that actually really align nicely with the canon gospels. 
Um, so, and, and that's by the way, why those weren't accepted because we're like, well, we already have this information, so we don't need to include these apocryphal, you know, these gospels because they really are similar to what we have in Canon, but things like the gospel of Thomas, the very last line says for every woman who makes herself a man will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you think, okay, well, that's an insane saying. And the gospel of Thomas puts that on the lips of Jesus. Okay. So first you say, okay, that's an outlandish claim, but for the sake of fairness, do we want to say, is it possible that Jesus could have said that? Well, no, because Jesus bases all of his teaching and ministry on the Old Testament, right? He fulfills and clarifies the teachings of the Old Testament, namely the law. So this text, just this is one example, but uh, every woman making herself a male, that easily contradicts what we have in Genesis when God, it says that God made them man and woman. Why? Why would a woman need to turn herself into a man in order to enter God's kingdom? Right. Women were just as much made in the, the image of God as man. So the the two things here, the apocryphal gospels, just remember the dating of them. All of them were written long after the apostles and eyewitnesses were dead. So there was no one to attest to these things. The gospel, according to Thomas, Thomas had long been martyred way before this alleged gospel that was written in his name. The Gospel of Judas, you know, if I was going to read a gospel, I don't know that I want to read one according to the person that betrayed our Lord, right? So right. just a bunch of silly stuff there. Um, I know that there, this is highly debated, and I don't want to just fluff off those people um, or ignore them. But, you know, look into some of these things and make sure that it's, you know, there's some continuity between what you're reading and the rest of Scripture. And that right. even applies to things like the, the Shepherd of Hermas and, and those sorts of, the Maccabees even, you, you mentioned right. those. Right. Um, they might they might be helpful to read, but if they're deviating from scripture, th- those parts we if we're going to be consistent, we have to reject. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think. Yep. I think the the at the crux of of really this whole episode, what we want to know as people who are are earnestly seeking truth, right? We want to know that what we're reading today, that we could have a conversation with somebody in the first century about who Jesus is. Um, you know, his life and his ministry, the things that he said, we can have a conversation with somebody in the first century and that we'll agree on the, on the same thing. So we'll both be saying the same things, right? We want to make, we want to know that, that it hasn't been changed. And so I think going back to, I, I can't remember if this is on this episode or the previous episode where we talked about some of the variants, but I kind of want to go into those a little bit more because I do think it's important to, that is something that when I heard about the two, three hundred, you know, the two, three, four hundred thousand, whatever it is, variants, that's obviously significant. That's a lot of variants. So we want to make sure that we understand exactly what those variants are. And I know you touched on a lot of this high level, but I kind of want to dig into it just a little bit. I'm going to go back to our, our good buddy, Bart Ehrman, again, and, uh, and give a quote. Again, we're not dogging on Bart Ehrman, but he is a, a loud voice in this. No, we are. In this field. We're, we're dogging on him. <laughs> so Bart Ehrman says, what good is it to say that the autographs or the originals were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only air-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them. Evidently, in thousands of ways, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. So the question is, is this true? And the answer is partially. Um, but this is a wildly irresponsible statement that Bart Ehrman claims to make here. And he knows that his audience is not going to actually take the five minutes to do the research to understand why what he just said is, in fact, incorrect. Um, so let's dive into it real quick. There's an organization called Stand to Reason. Again, like I said on this episode of the last, any organization or person that I am quoting um, that is not an endorsement of them, and it's also not a a lack of endorsement. Do the research on these institutions and these people, and find out for yourself if there's 
somebody worth you it's know. like that disclaimer that says we the um uh, or how does it say typically like the images and thoughts do not necessarily right, right, right. Reflect, you know? <laughs> they don't represent the views of, exactly of light and lion that's exactly what it is um, exactly so but yeah. the the uh so this institution so standard reason this organization um they say when it comes to the new testament it's not the number of variants that's important it's the nature of the variants and it's not the quantity of the differences it's the quality of the differences so i'm going to run through real quick four different types of textual variants that we see so there's going to be neither viable nor meaningful so these are differences in spelling like we talked about for example i believe john's name is spelt um two different ways if you look at the manuscripts so that's something that is it's not viable or and it's not meaningful it doesn't change anything um differences in spelling and these ors things like that that makes up about 70 percent of the variants right there so a huge chunk are just thrown out the window just like that um the second level is um or second one is viable but not meaningful so viable differences um but they make no meaningful change to the text um so again i, I guess you could say that an, an example of that would be like john's name um something that we see quite frequently between manuscripts a discrepancy but it doesn't change anything about the actual text itself, the meaning of it. Three, we have meaningful but not viable. So these are going to be variants that do, in fact, change the meaning of the text, but they could not possibly be in the original. So this is an instance where out of like the 5,000 manuscripts, all but one will say the same thing, like I was talking about before. And then a single manuscript will omit a piece of it. Uh, this is meaningful, but we would, of course, keep the 4,999 that say one thing and omit the one that does not say that. Um, and then four yeah. is viable and meaningful. And I'm running through these real quick, guys. There's a lot of brilliant scholars who have done research on these things and have a lot more in-depth research on this. Um, Mike Winger is a guy that I, I recommend as it pertains to this. Again, this is not a tacit endorsement of these people, um, although I do like Mike Winger a lot. But, um, but he does a good study on it. Chris, if you have any other people, feel free to recommend those guys um, as well. But number four is viable and meaningful. It says these have a good chance of being authentic and they do change the meaning of the text. This accounts for less than 1% of the variance. And here's the most essential thing that Chris had mentioned either on this episode or a previous one, but he said, no major doctrines depend on any meaningful and viable variance. In fact, Bart Ehrman was once asked, and I want to think back to what we just read about what Bart Ehrman said in his previous quote. He was once asked if these variants put the core tenets of Christian orthodoxy in jeopardy. Ehrman responded, quote, essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. So our good buddy Bart cannot seem to make up his mind when it comes to this. Chris, what do you think about that real quick? Yeah, no, um, I, th I think you covered it all. In terms of um, resources, you, you'd said uh, two that come to mind. Um, first, uh, Craig, I believe his name is pronounced Blomberg. It's B-L-O-M-B-E-R-G. He has a book called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. Again, this uh, a lot of work con concerning like biblical criticism does seem, at least in, in my very limited knowledge, seem to focus on the Gospels. Um, but I think there's a lot of compelling arguments and evidence that you could apply to the rest of Scripture, um, namely because how Jesus treats the rest of Scripture, the Old Testament um, in particular. he treats as um you know the the rest of Judaism treats the Old Testament as reliable uh documents that sort of tell the history of the nation of Israel and God's redemptive plan. Jesus believed that. So I think that's probably why a lot of the effort goes into either proving or disproving the reliability of the gospels in particular is because that's 
if we can show them to be reliable, then everything that Jesus says about the rest of the Bible, we can also sort of kind of, I, I hate to say lump it in <laughs> with it, but you you kind of can. So that's the first one. And then I, I don't know a, per, a specific work, but Dr. Michael Kruger, he's actually my professor for Gospels. Um, he's done quite a bit of work. He's the one who I mentioned had Bart Ehrman as a professor and, and that kind of sent him to, to study a lot of this. So he's written quite a bit on, on the topic as well. So I'd recommend those. Um, but yeah, so I think, uh, sort of wrapping up here and less Dakota, you have some more stuff that you want to talk. I really appreciate the topic around variations because that's probably the number one argument that I hear. Uh, and like, I think we mentioned episode one of the series is like, the contradictions, you know, in, in one scene of the resurrection, there was X amount of people, and in another scene, there's a, a different amount. Or uh, the 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 sign above Jesus says one thing in one account and says something else in another account. You know, all these sorts right. of things. I think you already covered that really nicely when you were talking about the perspectives, like with the Astros thing, where you're yeah. saying it's the same thing if you say they won in four games versus they right won they won in less than seven, seven games, right? It, it's about perspective. And another thing that I heard that really, and I can't remember who said it, I'd like to give them credit, but I can't remember who said it. But essentially they said when talking about like apparent contradictions in the gospel, a way to think about it is like, if you ask your boss, your wife and your child, all three write biographies on your life, you're going to get three different perspectives that are complementary, but they're distinct. Like your boss is going to talk probably more about how you were as an employee, your work ethic, those sorts of things as to where your spouse may talk more about um, your more emotional features or like how, how you sacrifice for your family. And then your child obviously is going to talk more about you being a provider and you know, those sorts of things, those things are meant to be a mosaic that are complementary. And we see the same thing really in all of scripture They they're not contradictory. They appear that way. I will concede that like there are some apparent contradictions, but again, the whole point of this first question answering is the Bible reliable. If we know that the Bible is reliable, and I'm going to make the argument here in a second that if it's reliable, it has to be trustworthy, um, that we have to be willing to dig below the surface and not just, you know, be like, again, our good buddy, Bart Ehrman, who says, oh, contradiction. So I'm going to throw my faith in the dumpster and uh, become a, a atheist or whatever Bart Ehrman claims to be. So right. we've talked yeah. a whole lot and we've kind of withheld our answer. Well, I mean, we've hinted at it, I will say, but right. we've withheld our formal answer. So what, what is the conclusion? And I think our, um, our conclusion can really well be summarized. I love this quote from Vody Bauckham. He has a whole hour long presentation on this. Highly recommend it. But Vody Bauckham says the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, which report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies that claim they are the words of a divine origin rather than human in origin. I think that's a really nice summary to say, yes, that is our answer. We, we spent th- you know over an hour and a half talking on this topic, but our answer is yes, the Bible is reliable. And there's some consequence to that, right? I just said that if the Bible is reliable, it has to be trustworthy because in my mind, if something's reliable, it, it it, I don't understand how it could be not trustworthy it, because if it's not trustworthy, then it can't be reliable. Those things go together. They are uh, mutually inclusive, I think would be the correct way to say that. Right. And in a, a, we, we talked about this when we talked about, is it wrong to investigate proofs? But I just want to reiterate here, the primary instrument of which we know the Bible is true is not by our logical deduction and looking at the evidence. 
It is by the internal testimony of the Spirit. Again, if you want to learn more about that sort of the theological discussion, I have a, a good episode on that on, on uh, the Theology in a Cup of Coffee podcast. But it's the work of the Spirit primarily that drives us to believe that when we're reading the, the Bible, we are reading God's inspired word. And it's not based on some sort of emotional feeling that is here today and gone tomorrow. If that's the case, then we would constantly change our mind. Oh, yeah, the Bible's inspired and reliable, or no, it's not based on your mood and your emotions. Um, you know, and I had here Mark one twenty two, and because I, I just think it's kind of applicable here. And the text says, and they were astonished. This is the audience that was listening to Jesus, right? They were astonished at his teachings, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I think it's worth pointing out that the same spirit that convicted Jesus's listeners in whatever situation this was where they're hearing him teach, there was something about him that they realized the religious leaders of our day, they teach, but they don't teach this way. There's something different. And it's important too to say there was a ton of imitators. There was a lot of people before Jesus's time who claimed to be Messiah. And that, you know, that's an interesting topic in and of itself. What was it about Jesus where when people heard him teach, they said, there's something unique. There's something authoritative about this guy. Um, and it, it's the, the work of the Spirit. And that same Spirit's in work in us. We don't get to audibly hear Jesus' voice. Justin Peters, he, he famously says, if you want to hear God talk, read your Bible. If you want to hear him talk audibly, read it out loud. And I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it. But it's the same Spirit that convicted those listeners 2,000 years ago when we read our Bibles. We can say, yes, uh, there is authority here. There is reliability, but that's also not to totally discredit external proofs. We can look at archaeology and we can look at the historicity of the Bible and and those sorts of things. But a final comment I'll make, Dakota, and I'll turn it over to you, is we don't want you guys to take, or at least I don't want you guys to take this episode and and all the evidence we've talked, because I think we've made a pretty compelling argument that the, the gospel is reliable, or the Bible, excuse me, is reliable. However, we don't want you to just take this information and then think that now you're going to be able to go out and beat atheists in debates and and arguments. Because in my experience, you can present all this evidence and more and make no ground. They're still going to say the exact same thing. Well, you're just being biased. You just want to believe you're weak. You're trying to cope with the fact that you've got to die, whatever the argument is. And so... I don't want our listeners to be discouraged if that happens. If if you do make progress, praise God for that. He has used the evidence we've talked about here to open someone's eyes. But don't be discouraged if you're talking with a skeptic or an atheist and, and these evidences. It doesn't mean that the evidence isn't there. It, it's not an intellectual issue at that point. It is a heart issue. And that's a work, again, purely of the Spirit. So I just want to kind of encourage you guys there because I've been in conversations where I'm like, I find these arguments compelling. And then a person just pretty much laughs at me and says, oh, well, you're, you're biased or blah, 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 whatever. Believe in your flying spaghetti monster God or whatever it is that they want to call him. Um, and then I kind of felt discouraged. I'm like, hmm, am I seeing this evidence right? And I, I just wanted to say, like, don't be discouraged if that happens to you guys because it will happen. But again, it's not because the evidence is lacking. It's because there is a heart issue in, in the the Holy Spirit needs to get in there and, and open their eyes. And, and that's not your job. All, right. all you can do is share the evidence and share the gospel and pray. Th- those are the, the three things that you can do. Right. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's, all, that's all so good. And, and I completely agree with all of that. I think that 
we have to understand that it's this is so critical. This search for truth is important enough for us to seriously take the time to consider it and do research on it. Um, so many of us want to be content to kind of believe without really understanding why. And so I think that it's worth the time and the investment to go in. If something that we've said today is you're like, I think I, I might agree with that, but I'm not sure, or I disagree with that, whatever it might be, I challenge you to go do your own research. Um, and I challenge really everyone listening to go do your own research. It's worth the the investment of time to seek out truth. And I would say, the as I, I said in the first episode, the greatest way to spot something that is phony is to know inside and out the thing that is true. Uh, Chris, like you said, I think we've mm. we've you know we, we we've talked for you know an hour and a half now um, about this stuff. I think we've given quite a few pretty compelling reasons why we believe the Bible is true. Um, go, you know, t- take take the Bible and as we said in, in previous episodes too, when we sh- you should be so filled with the Bible that I think it's Paul Washer says when someone cuts you, you should bleed the word. Um, we should know the Bible yeah. inside and out and spend significantly more time studying the word than we do studying the things that are fake. There's nothing wrong with with studying other religions and things like that to to get a better understanding of what they believe so that you can have um, compassionate and gracious conversations and, and give them the honor of understanding what it is they believe. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're dedicating the vast majority of our time to studying the true source. Um, so that we can better understand or know when we're seeing something that doesn't exactly align with that. Uh, somehow in our hour and a half, there there are still many things that we have not touched on that that we had planned on. I don't even know how it's possible with the, the sheer amount of time we talked about it. But I will say this is something that's worth exploring um, and diving into and some kind of just, just firing off real quick. Things like that I have wrestled with before, things like why are there missing or bracketed verses in my Bible? If you go to John 7, uh, 53 through 811 or mark 16 9 through 20 you'll notice that there's either it's either missing or it's probably bracketed um, or with an asterisk or something like that if your bible does not have those bracketed or an asterisk this goes back to the translation discussion i probably would leave that translation and go find a different one if they just put it in there with no uh no caveat justification um, no justification something. for those right um i'm not going to dive too much into those i will just say that is something that's worth going and exploring further. Um, and, and look into that. But I will give a couple of examples of some variants that we see, some examples of, of a verse that you probably will not find in your Bible, but there probably will be a footnote on this and why this isn't an issue. So uh, Matthew 18, 11, if you go to your Bible right now and pull it, op- pull it open, you'll be surprised to find that it probably goes from Matthew 18, 10 to Matthew 18, 12. And you're like, wait a minute, I never noticed that. Uh, not in the Bible. Matthew 18, 11 says, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. In the Bible, Luke 19, 10 says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Um, Let's go to another one, not in the Bible, Matthew 23, 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. For a pretense, you make long prayers, therefore you will receive the greater condemnation. In the Bible, Matthew 23, um, 1 through 2, 5 through 6, 25 and 33 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees said on Moses' seat, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor of feasts in the best seats in the synagogues. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And then one more example here, not in the Bible, Mark 7, 16 says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In the Bible, Matthew 15, Matthew eleven fifteen says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
um, hopefully you're seeing the kind of the point that I'm making here is that as we go back to the variance, which is I think the thing that that ultimately one of all of us want to make sure that the Bible that we're reading is the same Bible that the earliest Christians, if they had an actual you know text Bible, which a lot of that was oratory, and that's something for another episode. But if if we were having a conversation with somebody that was a contemporary of you know say somebody like Luke, if we're having a conversation with Luke, we would want to know that what we believe and what we hold fast to is the same exact thing that Luke believed and held fast to, and what he what he saw and what he experienced. Um, and I think that that we have a overwhelming consensus in, in what we've read and, and what we've seen here that verifies that that is in fact the case. So we can hold fast to the truth of the Bible. We can know with, with an insane level of certainty that what we are reading is in fact the words of Jesus, the deeds of Jesus, and the acts of the, the apostles as well. Um, so yep. trust that the Bible is true, know it's true, and now get in it and learn it and, and know it more. Um, I think that's pretty much all we have today, guys. Um, like I said, do some more research on this. Dive in more. Don't just take our word for it, but um, but feel free to uh, to just do some research of your own. If you have any questions really on any of this stuff, any comments, anything you want to talk about, uh, feel free to shoot us a DM on Instagram, and we'd love to uh, to kind of go back and forth with you on that. Um, our Instagram tag is at Light and Lion Podcast. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, guys, keep on growing in knowledge to the glory of God. See you next time.